I V M. says that any body that has the power to amend a law mm-hmm. 
is generally given that power by the law itself and on some fundamental level that means that they can't change that law completely yawn alert what is that <laughs> it basically means that uh, when the constitution grants the parliament to amend the constitution uh, that doesn't mean the parliament has uh, a unlimited right to change it a good sort of understandable example is of uh, a genie granting three wishes Okay. The genie is granting you a limited power. He's only giving you three wishes. So it's generally understood that you cannot use one of those wishes to ask for an infinite number of wishes. Don't be that person. <laughs> and uh, and this is actually a, a really really good example uh, given by uh, this author uh, Zia Modi in a book called Ten Judgments That Have Changed India. Okay, we'll link that in the bio. Uh, let's go back to the Keshavanandavarti case. So the basic structure started with the Keshavanandavarti case. Well, no, the Keshavanandavarti case resolved a long-standing tussle between the Parliament and the Supreme Court that actually began began from the birth of the Constitution itself. Uh, the Constitution granted uh, one of the fundamental rights that it granted was the right to property. Okay. But at the same time, the founding fathers had this vision of. Uh, Sort of making India far more egalitarian, and one of the things that that meant was that they wanted to pass a lot of land reform laws targeting zamindars hmm. and redistributing that property, and that obviously contra- like conflicted with the right to property. So uh, the Supreme Court immediately struck down a lot of those laws. And obviously the government wasn't happy. With it. Yeah, it retaliated and came back with more amendments. No, it came, well, rather more amendments, it came back with the First Amendment. And uh, amongst the many things that the First Amendment did is that it created this list in the Constitution, uh, which it called the Ninth Schedule, which it placed any laws that it didn't want the judiciary to touch. So by placing a law in the Ninth Schedule, the judiciary couldn't review it and declare it unconstitutional. So it's like a no-go zone. So it's a no-go zone. So that obviously did not sit too well with the judiciary. And they eventually, in this judgment called uh, Golaknath versus versus the state of Punjab, uh, okay. Guy called Golaknath did something right. to the state of Punjab. <laughs> uh, well, he, this Golaknath was uh, another person, uh, was, I think a Zamindari who wasn't too happy with land reform laws, basically. So he went to the court against the state of Punjab saying, they leave me with no remedy. The state can just take my land and I can't even go to court and, uh, you know, fight for what's right. Well, what, what he managed to achieve and what the greater impact of the case was, was that uh, the Supreme Court now said that amendments to the Constitution themselves were uh, sort of capable of being scrutinized by the judiciary. Let's let's start with basic civics. In a democracy, there are three parts of the state, right? You have legislature, executive and the judiciary. There's a principle of checks and balances. Whatever laws the legislature passes has to be subject to judicial review. Okay, so this is basically a tussle between the legislature yeah. and the judiciary. Basically, basically the uh, judiciary is saying we can uh, we can restrict what uh, you can amend, and the parliament would come back saying yes, we can, and the judiciary saying no, you can't, and it was this back back and forth like that. Okay, you did not break up. Yes, we broke up. You did not break up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But boiling down to the question from the party case, what happened? So, uh, we mentioned the, the, the Golaknath mm. uh, sort of judgment and uh, the Golaknath judgment challenged the First Amendment and some of the other amendments and uh, 
what it said is that uh, amendments can be looked at. So the parliament uh, passed uh, three, uh, like two amendments back to back, the 24th and the 25th. Your <laughs> Sorry, we'll just jump right into it. So after the court gave an adverse judgment mm-hmm. to the union government, what the parliament did is it went back to an article 30, it created an article called 30C. Second one. <laughs> I'm, I just give me some time okay, <laughs> the parliament created a provision in the constitution which said that um, the courts will have no jurisdiction to um, scrutinize any law that we pass especially under the directive principles of the state policy which is creating a welfare state mm-hmm. even if they violate fundamental rights of the constitution okay so you're saying if your directive principles violate your fundamental rights uh, the parliament can do very little about it. No, parliament the courts can do very little about it. The courts can do very little about it. In fact, not only can they do very little about it, they can't even look into that law to see whether it actually does what it says in that it furthers the directive principle of state policy. Or rather, what this uh, amendment enabled parliament to do is say that any law uh, is passed under a directive principle of state policy and just by virtue of saying that it was passed under a directive principle of state policy meant that one, it could violate fundamental rights and two, couldn't be challenged by the Supreme Court. But just get away with anything. So basically you're saying the parliament said, hey, we're doing this in your interest, even though it's not in the fundamental rights and that makes it untouchable. So generally fundamental rights are are sort of um, heralded as 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 an intrinsic part of the constitution they form part of the basic structure of the constitution your right to speak your right to live with dignity these kind of things are your fundamental rights now for the parliament to actually insert a provision in the constitution saying that we will come out with any law we want under the directive principles and even if it infringes on your right to live with dignity you can't do anything about it Okay, so wait, I'm going to go back. Who is Keshav Nanda Bharti and why are we talking about him? So, Keshav Nanda Bharti was, I think, the leader of a mutt in Kerala. Okay. Who's, uh, and the mutt owned a lot of properties and they were hit by one of the many land reform laws that the government was passing at the time. And uh, so he sort of challenged the amendments that the constitution parliament had passed to undermine the Golaknath judgment, saying uh, that they violated his fundamental rights and he had uh, one of the best lawyers of uh, that age, who is a boss level lawyer, meaning there's Excellent. no other way uh, of describing him really. Yeah. So his, uh, he was the one who sort of uh, invoked the basic structure uh, doctrine. Mm-hmm. And it was quite an ingenious uh, sort of concept because what it allowed the Supreme Court to do was create a win-win situation for both the Supreme Court and the Parliament because it on one hand allowed uh, the Parliament to amend any parts of the Constitution including the fundamental rights and this is a necess- this can be a good thing amendment to a constitution need not always be negative can be positive as well a good like example is RT is uh, the RT the right, right to education uh, under uh, article 21A 
Okay, so how did the parliament take place? After the Keshav Nanda Bharati uh, case, um, the parliament didn't really uh, take too well to the judgment. And as, as we are all aware, in 1975, there was an emergence. So wait, so if the Keshav Nanda Bharati case created a win-win situation and it guaranteed that the parliament couldn't abuse the constitution, we should have had something like the emergency, right? Ultimately, you have to remember that... Uh, what led to the emergency was the way that the constitution was framed to allow emergency powers internal to be invoked for internal struggle. And that is always likely to be misused by a government that is beginning to lose its power. Meaning it's this is where the politics of it comes in. And uh, obviously Indira Gandhi's government faced a lot of flack for declaring the emergency. But okay. But before we go into the impact of the uh, basic structure and how it was challenged, I think because the basic structure is such a nebulous idea, I think I we still have no idea what you guys are saying when you're saying basic structure. Do the judges know what they were saying? When they well, were saying basic well, structure? they certainly thought they did, but none of them agreed on what they thought was basic structure. Each of the uh, judges that approved the judgment, mm-hmm. uh, that is the seven judges, all had a uh, had differing ideas of. The components of basic structure. So you're saying if there were three judges on the panel of the Kishan and the Bhatti case, the three of us don't necessarily agree on what basic structure means. Yeah. No. So no. what does basic structure mean? Well, uh, if you look at the, the items that um, the judges list when uh, they talk about basic structure, uh, there are some commonalities. Uh, the first commonality is actually where they draw their idea from uh, of basic structure in the first place. They look at three very specific parts of the constitution. One is uh, the preamble, uh, two are the fundamental rights, and three are the directive principles of state policy. But we just said directive principles of state policy aren't binding, right? Yeah, they are not enforceable, but... So is the preamble, but it just, it creates a theme for the constitution. No, no, what, what, I think the directive principles of state policy uh, sort of uh, enshrine what Granville Austin called the social revolution of the Indian constitution, in that uh, the Indian constitution is an anomaly amongst most constitutions, is that it doesn't look to protect a status quo, mm-hmm. it looks to change the status quo. And uh, the, no chapter of the uh, constitution sort of captures that better than the directive principles of state policy. Okay, but going back to basic structure, from what I understand, you guys are saying like it's the spirit of the constitution. So, I, I, let me give you some of the uh, common aspects. Uh, well, one, I think most of the judges would have agreed that judicial review, that is the ability of uh, the judiciary to review laws, hmm. was uh, part of the basic structure and that would have in turn stemmed from uh, the concept of a separation of separation of powers, what Mansa said about checks and balances between the three organs of government. Uh, and then other aspects uh, include uh, liberty and equality, which you can find in the fundamental rights as well as the preamble. Uh, what I mentioned before about uh, the welfare state and uh, the in- endeavor of the Indian state to create an uh, egalitarian society. Federalism. The ideas and principles that form a democratic republic uh, with sort of individual liberty uh, of representative government. A rule of law. Okay, so you're saying that all of this goes back to the fundamentals of what this nation was built on. Yeah, yeah and also I'd just like to clarify at this stage that 
yes, it is a disadvantage that the basic structure doctrine is not defined and is is vague because it that could be prone to misuse. But at the same time, you don't want it to be set in stone and crystallized. You want it just like the constitution. You want it to be fluid and adaptable to changing times. Okay, so. Why do we need a basic structure? I think fundamentally, uh, why the court passed the basic structure doctrine in the first place is because it had what I think is a healthy and necessary skepticism of uh, representative democracy. Uh, a good example of this is the way that uh, political parties recently have opposed um, uh, the right to information being applied to political parties, or how they wanted. Uh, convicts and charged uh, people with uh, charge sheets against them to be able to stand for election and they were actually going to do that until Rahul Gandhi of all people uh, tore it away tore it up okay yeah but this doesn't start with Rahul Gandhi it goes back to Indra Gandhi right after the Keshananda Bharti case exactly so if you look at the application of the uh, basic structure doctrine in fact the very first case that the basic structure doctrine was invoked was in Indira Gandhi versus Raj Narayan, which was the case that sparked emergency. It was uh, uh, what instigated emergency. And finally, uh, in in response to that case, uh, Indira Gandhi passed the 39th Amendment, uh, which, if you let me say what the 39th Amendment does, it's quite simple. All it does is that it... Uh, prevents uh, courts from scrutinizing the elections of the president, the vice president, the prime minister and the speaker of the house. Wait, so the parliament basically says that I can get elected and you can't do anything about yeah. it? I mean, I can get elected using uh, sort of... Any means. Any means and uh, the courts can't do anything about it. And the Supreme Court uh, struck this amendment down using the basic structure doctrine. Alright. And it's relevant today... Um, it's as relevant today as it was before. We the recent example is the NJAC uh, judgment. Okay. What the NJAC judgment basically held was that how the judges are appointed and nominated, etc., is part of the basic structure of the constitution, and it can't be uh, changed. The argument that they used was that the independence of the judiciary was a part of yeah. the basic structure, and that the uh, uh, NJAC. Uh, sort of compromise the independence. Yeah, but then if lawyers are as unscrupulous as you guys, then isn't it fair enough for uh, the parliament to say that, yes, we should have transparency in electing lawyers? This is another example of a back and forth between the parliament and the Supreme Court in terms of the the scope of certain provisions of the constitution. But the point is basically that the basic structure doctrine can be used either way, right? Uh, You can find a lot of the language of the basic structure, uh, not only in uh, instances of the judiciary declaring an amendment unconstitutional, but also declaring a law uh, unconstitutional. So when it uh, declared Section 66A of the IT Act, basically the Section 66A of the IT Act and some of the other sections of the Information Technology Act uh, restricted the right to free speech by a fairly sort of substantial and steep and very, very unreasonable uh, manner and extent. So, uh, when the court was saying that um, this law is unconstitutional, they started talking about how the right to free speech was a basic part of our constitution and a fundamental part of democratic polity and how it needed to be protected. 
So the basic circuit doctrine, aside from actually being implemented, has also fundamentally changed the uh, judicial discourse in India and also abroad. Uh, in uh, 1989, uh, the Bangladeshi Supreme Court uh, passed a law using the reasoning in Keshanda Bharati to change to sort of restrict constitutional amendments. And uh, the basic structure doctrine is in fact one of the proud exports of the Indian judiciary. It has been copied in other uh, countries along with the PIL, the public interest litigation. These are the two sort of uh, constructs of the Indian judiciary that have been exported. Okay, so you're saying that the basic structure is one of the unwritten laws that guarantees that the Indian state is still what it was when it was formed. Because if you look at the timing of the uh, basic structure doctrine, it was happening at a time when Indira Gandhi and the government were sort of fundamentally changing uh, the constitution in many ways. And uh, it, it halted that slide. And, uh, and, and through uh, the sort of uh, declaring her many amendments unconstitutional, protected the democratic nature of the Indian Republic. And that's why we call this case the case that saved Indian democracy. Yes, very much. All right. Thank you guys for breaking down the Kishan Nandapati case. Thanks for yawning. <laughs> uh, that's it for this episode of the Takshashila podcast. So we will do more on judgments that changed India and we will attach some readings related to Zia Modi and some of the other huge legalese that made me yawn during this podcast in the bio. Uh, We will see you next time.